Welcome back to Pod Save the World. My guest today needs no introduction, Ben Rhodes, who you all know as the former Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications for Barack Obama. And now he is the author of the book, The World as It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Ben, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Tommy, as always. So my first impression of this book is that it's, well, first, it's really good. Like you're- But it's it's not just good because it's good writing, and it's not good because it's about Obama and I like Obama. It's good because it's brutally honest. You know, this is not a hagiography. Yeah. This is – you are honest about his faults. You are honest about your own mistakes and faults. Yeah. I feel like reading this, that you went through an evolution from defending his foreign policy to just explaining it. And it is the yeah. best explanation of the things he did and why he did them and the headwinds and things we faced at the time that I've read literally anywhere. So – yeah. Did it take you some time and space to get to a place where you could even write this thing? Because it certainly took me a while to realize that, like, I was no longer a spokesman. I didn't need to respond to everything on Twitter, and I could actually step back and be a little analytical. Yeah, and it's a really good point. I think there are two things that helped me. One is the dynamic I was going for when I sat down to write this was – to try to explain to people, you know, because there are a lot of White House memoirs or administration memoirs and not a lot of them, you know, are that memorable. They tend to just kind of defend positions that people took in meetings and that's Mm -hmm. kind of it. What I realized was a little different about my story is that I was 29 years old when I moved out to Chicago to work on the campaign in 07 Mm -hmm. and, you know, met you, Tommy. Yeah. I was like totally anonymous, you know. I was a normal person, you know, unlike, you know, Hillary Clinton or John Kerry or Leon Panetta. So a reader, I wanted to to explain to a reader, what's it like to be like a normal guy who finds himself suddenly on a campaign and then in the White House and then in this deputy national security advisor role? So pull back the curtain on the personal dynamic. You know, what, Mm -hmm. what did this do to my personal life? What is it like to find yourself suddenly in that kind of pressure cooker, in that kind of limelight? And that gave me an entry point. I think to speak more honestly about yeah. like my own doubts and self doubts and flaws. And right. Then I mean, you open this thing like yeah. in a long distance relationship. You hope will last. Sleeping on a mattress on the floor in yeah. Chicago, yeah. to married yeah. with yeah. two kids by the end. Right. I mean, like that's a massive life change. Exactly, and this is all playing out. You know, w- your life, as you know, doesn't stop when you go into these jobs. Yeah. Um, but it looks like it does to the outside world. But you know, yeah, I, I moved out to Chicago. I was, you know living with my girlfriend, had to do a long-distance relationship, see if that works. Is this job going to work out? You know, I couldn't have told you then that I'd end up being the deputy national security advisor. And so that gave me a kind of a voice and a way to talk about things that was more personal and less like a, a recounting of events. But you make a great point. I mean, you know, the, the instinct that you have is to be a spokesperson for Obama yeah. and to defend him and defend his legacy. And it did take, you know, some some doing to just kind of get that mindset to the side because I realized, you know, overall, I obviously, you know, would want to defend our policy, do think highly of President Obama. But you know what? Like, that's going to be more credible if you're honest about what you did wrong or what you don't know you did right or wrong or the warts and all on his character and my character and and all of us. And, 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 you know, honesty is ultimately more credible. Right. And I had a weird experience when I was with you also, when we did a Pod Save the World event with Samantha in L.A. I remember some guy in the audience asked me, like, why did we didn't um, recognize the Armenian genocide? Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, well, that was a mistake. We should have done that. 
And it was the first time I think I'd ever done that in public, just been like, yeah, something we did is a total mistake. Yeah. And and it was liberating to be like, I don't have to just say, well, we were weighing these security concerns. It's right. a small thing, but but it does allow for, I think, a, a better understanding for people of, of what it was what it was like to go through this. Yeah, and it turns discussions about these issues into conversations and not arguments, and that is just such yeah. a nice place to get to. Yeah. I just want to go into one specific criticism and then step back more. You talk about during the Arab Spring, you felt like after those initial days of pushing the envelope on, on universal rights and human rights and support for the protesters, that the government and Obama as well sort of fell back into a traditional posture of supporting the military and those in power. And when you pushed Obama on this, you said, quote, at times he seemed to be er using his powerful mind to find justifications for more modest ambitions. And essentially that our response during the Arab Spring didn't meet the magnitude of the change that was happening across the region. Do you think that his ambitions were moderated by cautious advisors like Bob Gates, or was it political concerns or a growing recognition of our inability maybe to influence events or, or some combination of all of that? It's a fascinating question. And I think there, there are two issues here. There's Egypt in particular. Yeah. And there, I do think that the advisors and the instincts of the U.S. government ended up pulling him back. And I think I find a lot wrong with uh, what we did on Egypt. You know, mm -hmm. I supported breaking with Mubarak, not just because it was the right thing to do, because frankly, I didn't think Mubarak was going to be able to withstand those protests. That was a minority position in the government, certainly not the position of Bob Gates and Hillary Clinton and, and our agencies, you know, national security agencies. And what happened, Tommy, after that, and you, you were there, yeah. you may remember this, the government never adjusted to Obama's position. You know, their yep. default was, we work with the military, we work with the intelligence services. And as soon as Mubarak was out of power, there was kind of this rush to just embrace the military that was in the interim role as leading the country. And a lot of mistakes were made by the, you know, the military kind of set up a dynamic in Egypt where the Egyptian military, where it was kind of them or the Muslim Brotherhood, binary. And they kind of sidelined secular parties that might have offered a third alternative. And ultimately, the Muslim Brotherhood won the election in part, I believe, because of how the military set that dynamic up. And then ultimately, the Egyptian military had a coup, which we didn't even call a coup, mm -hmm. which I also think was a mistake. And so I, I feel like we – I don't know that Egypt – you know, you can never go back and say everything would have turned out differently. But I do feel like we never – saw through to a logical endpoint a policy that had democracy in Egypt as as its goal. That we basically, you know, took this dramatic action in breaking Mubarak, but the the government didn't change its general orientation of being deferential to the Egyptian military in the aftermath of of, of that shift. Mm -hmm. I think separately on the questions of military intervention in Libya and then ultimately Syria, there I think Obama on his own was very was very cautious, and uh, frankly, after he did intervene in Libya, was even more reluctant to do so in Syria. There, I actually in the book I described kind of going through this evolution of coming to believe that he was right mm -hmm. and looking at these countries, you know, realizing our ability to use our military to shape events inside of you know uh, Syria or Libya was ultimately going to be very limited. So, you know, I think. You know, historians will be debating this for for decades, but I do think you know we have to acknowledge that we we kind of charged up the hill at the beginning of the Arab Spring, but we we never went all in in support of it, and ultimately Obama's more cautious instincts 
kind of came together with the dysfunction yeah. in the Middle East to lead to a, a much more, you know, moderated, deliberate type of approach. Yeah, I mean, just to plug the book again for a second, I mean, it really brought me back to those 16, 17 crazy days yeah. uh, when the protests were just roiling in Egypt. I mean, there was that final phone call where Obama told Mubarak that it was time to go. And I remember standing outside the Oval Office, I think you were in it, and hearing not just Obama shouting into the phone, but you could hear Mubarak screaming back in English yeah. and in Arabic yeah. on speakerphone. Yeah. It was just, it felt like the world was moving so fast and there was absolutely nothing we could do to keep up with it. Another great little anecdote, just before I move on, uh, just talking about the you know, the president can make a decision, but the government doesn't always follow. My favorite little note in that is when you were talking about writing a, a Guantanamo speech, yeah, yeah. Uh, you said uh, you sent the intelligence community an edit calling Gitmo a legal black hole. And you got back a note that <laughs> yeah. changed it to detainees at Guantanamo of more legal representation have been afforded more process than any enemy combatants in the history of the world. So, yeah, yeah. yeah a little inertia there at times. Well, I, and just real quick on that one. I mean, I was like 31 years old. Right. right. And I'm writing the a fuck speech. And, yeah. And on the campaign, you know, we've been saying we're going to close Gitmo and, and it's a black hole because nobody there has been prosecuted. And then I get in government. I write a speech like that. And. You have to clear it through the intelligence community. And I get that back and I'm like, what do I do with this? You know? Black is white. It, it, yeah, exactly. It was a it was definitely a situation where you realize that unlike a presidential campaign, the US government, it's not a deep state, but it is it does have its own antibodies. Yeah. I'm jumping around a bit, but I want to go to the just the period that you open with in the book, that post election period, which is Publicly, Obama is the guy bucking up the whole White House. He's graciously welcoming Donald Trump to the Oval Office. He's putting on a brave face with foreign leaders. But privately, he is starting to question what happened and whether that means his entire worldview and approach was wrong and whether he maybe backed people into a corner uh, and led them to revert to tribalism. Maureen Dowd wrote a, a kind of shitty column asserting that that anecdote, that chapter you wrote about means Obama thought he was too good for us. I thought that was a, a misread, but you were there. What was he thinking? What was he saying? And what were those weeks and months like? Yeah, I, you know, the the notion that that was arrogance, you know, that, that was a surprising take for me because actually it was the opposite. He was second guessing, you know, himself in profound ways and self-examining in profound ways. What happened essentially and I tell this story like, you know, at first he was bucking us all up in the White House, you know, and then as time began to pass, you know, he started to question things like we all did. Like, well, you know, was it the Comey letter? Was it the Russians? Was it the the Hillary campaign? Like, well, how did this happen? But then what was really interesting is we went on this foreign trip and the consequences abroad felt even more stark than at home in mm -hmm. this strange way, because at home you at least have to have in the media that he said, she said, and they're both sides. Abroad, it was uniform horror at what had happened. You know, it, we in in Greece and then Germany, Angela Merkel was, you know, we I described she had a tear in her eye the last time uh, she saw Obama. Uh, we get to, to the summit in Lima. Everybody's kind of asking him, well, what's going to happen now? We had this meeting with Justin Trudeau where he tries to kind of urge him to speak up for, for liberal values uh, going forward. And you know, I think what, what he's referring to there is not were we wrong about the campaign or about mm -hmm. Hillary or he's referring to the pace of change in the United States and, and, and really the West, uh, I'd say, you know, the, the, the movement of people, trade, that globalization in a way uh, had gotten out ahead of where people were and that mm -hmm. people, whether it's the Brexit vote or the Trump election, 
it showed that people were clinging to their you know more traditional identities, whether it's make you know Russia great again or make America great again. That essentially his brand of inclusive politics was not what well, was rejected by voters who wanted to be tribal and, and didn't want to embrace uh, a future that is more inclusive and diverse and tolerant and globalist, to use a word that has come under assault. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and that, that's what he was really wrestling with is like, how do we balance, you know, as progressives, our view uh, that the world continues to move in a certain direction with the kind of reactionary forces that want to push back against that and that the balance you know, we had to take seriously the fact that, you know, this was a pretty dramatic correction with Brexit and Trump winning elections and with Putin kind of asserting himself that, you know, should lead all of us to at least, you know, question, well, how do we, if we're going to promote these values, these progressive values, how do we make sure that they don't, we don't do so in a way that loses, you know, you're not going to win everybody over, but, you know, that, that loses contact with people who also don't want to feel like their traditional identities are under assault. Yeah. You got called up to the Oval Office right after Obama's meeting with Trump, right? Yeah. I mean, so the readout in the book sounds like in person, face-to-face, Trump was a bit of a uh, – he was friendly. He was open to preserving the Iran deal, talking about Obamacare. You know, it sounded yeah. like there was not a lot of the uh, bravado and bluster that you see in public. Was that your sense yeah. talking to Obama? Yeah, no, there was none of it. And you know, he was kind of bemused. He didn't really know what to make of it because Trump was very – had been very ingratiating and said nice things about how they both drew huge crowds and, you know, we can draw big crowds but Hillary can't. And, you know, Obama's trying to walk him through health care and immigration and the Iran deal and, you know, Trump's not particularly engaging on that but saying, oh, yeah, I'll take a look at that. And so he – he was kind of struggling to know what to do with that, you know. In a yeah. way, it'd be easier if Trump came in and was like, "Let's debate healthcare," you mm-hmm. know. But that's not what happened. And, and and I think on the one hand, sure, that made the meeting go better. It also made him think, "Well, like, what what's actually going to happen here?" Yeah, yeah. And, and during that same time period, meanwhile, the U.S. government, the intelligence community, they are slowly coming to terms with just the amount of Russian interference into the election and, yeah. and all the stunning linkages to the Trump campaign. You write about how initially you weren't read into those discussions for reasons I'll let you explain. But then when you mm-hmm. were brought in, you guys got briefed more and more, like probably daily. What was it like slowly coming to grips and getting presented a full picture of that amount of interference when the rest of the world has no idea yet? Yeah, it was kind of like you know having the, the first edit of a horror movie and, and yeah. watching it unfold. <laughs> I mean, first to your point, and I wasn't, you know, wasn't sour grapes, so I wasn't in meetings. The point I was making is essentially we saw Russia develop a certain capability to wage information warfare in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That after the toppling of the Yanukovych government in Ukraine, Putin kind of went all in, obviously in annexing Crimea, but also in creating these capabilities, these thousands of bots who could spread social media disinformation a capacity to lie, a desire to to push information into Western publics using RT, their other platform. So we we kind of got, or even intercepting phone calls. And I, mm-hmm. I talk about one where they intercepted a phone call of a U.S. Uh, diplomat and released it publicly, which you know had never been done while I was in government that I could remember. And what happened in the election is the Russia question was treated like a, a cyber issue. Mm-hmm. So over that summer of 2016, there were all these secret meetings. And it reminded me, Tommy, of like the bin Laden meetings 
when you and I were there where yeah. there are these people who are really important meeting in the situation room and you're not invited. Right. <laughs> and you kind of know better than to ask like, hey, what's that unmarked meeting? And you they know? literally turn off the cameras that let people's assistants see who's in a meeting, if it's breaking up, et cetera. That's exactly right. They don't put the topic of the meeting on the door and stuff, which they normally do. So I kind of figured out over time that th- that might have something to do with Russia. And finally, in September, Susan Rice sat me down and said, hey, we've had this process going um, with respect to Russia. Uh, we're going to do a statement from the intelligence community that is you know, calling out their interference. And she kind of caught me up to speed on it. Now, the problem, I think, in retrospect is that there were no communications people in those meetings because this was viewed as kind of a cybersecurity issue, right? right? So let's, you know, who can defend the election systems and who can figure out what the hack was? And and we'll bring the communications people in at the end, which is how sometimes people thought about, you know, a lot of things. But it's not just me, like, you know, Jen Psaki, for instance, who our communications director, she had been the target of a Russian disinformation campaign. You know, mm-hmm. they had spent years disparaging her and because she would criticize them on Ukraine when she was a State Department spokesperson. We had some experience about this fake news issue and this kind of information warfare issue that wasn't really at that table. And so when the statement did come out from the intelligence community in October saying that Russia was meddling the election, it talked about the hacking it didn't say anything about the fake news. Right. And so it was kind of like the missing piece of our warning and, and how we talked about these things. Now, I also was sympathetic to Obama. He's like, look, because I went to him and I said that to him. And he said, well, look, I mean, we can't – if I tell people that this is fake news, Trump's going to say the election's rigged. The people consuming that news aren't going to listen to me. You know, We can debate forever whether he should have said more. That was the basic you know, fact of it. Now, what did happen to me and I describe – is right after the election, there was a meeting where he ordered the intelligence community to do this review of you know, what happened with Russian meddling. And right away, you know, I start to hear John Brennan, Jim Clapper lay this out, and it's much worse than, than I had any idea of, even as someone who consumed intelligence and had ultimately been brought into this. And then over the course of the transition, it was like every piece of information that started to be put together – pointed to the worst case scenarios, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the scale of what Russia did and then ultimately the possibility that they had colluded with the Trump people. You know, the, that process of doing that review, you know, you reach down in the U.S. government, you pull up a lot of information, you start to connect a lot of dots and the picture got uglier and uglier uh, until I was sitting in the Oval Office when Comey and Clapper and Brennan briefed Obama and a group of us on this review and our jaws dropped, you know, um, and it it was just worse than we ever knew. Frankly, we also had no idea that the FBI had been investigating the Trump campaign. They don't brief that to us. Um, And and so I describe in the transition, just getting this sense, I'm sitting in the West Wing. I know I'm going to, you know, on the way out, right? I'm not going to be able to deal with this. I'm not going to be able to act on this. I'm not going to be able to respond to this and that the people who are are the ones who might have been involved in (laughs) colluding with the Mm -hmm. Russians. So it was this kind of surreal experience. And I, yeah, I knew kind of when I walked out the door, like, man, this stuff is going to have a long tail. I mean, and, and, and what was even stranger is in the months after I left government, I continued to learn from the press. Each detail was worse. I mean, uh, if you had told me in November, of 2016 that like Don Jr. was having meetings with Russian agents and yeah. Trump Tower, I'd be like, oh, come on. It's not that crazy. Let's all calm down here. <laughs> you know. Right, so right. the story just got worse and worse.
in happier times, you ended up leading these historic negotiations with Cuba. The process seems to be, it starts with you telling Obama that you were sick of fighting with reporters uh, and you wanted to do more proactive policy development in the second term. And it ends with Obama flying to Havana to push to normalize relations with Cuba to the greatest extent possible. And you later attending Fidel Castro's funeral and going to this boozy dinner at uh, Raul Castro's house. In the middle were secret trips to Canada, meet with Raul's son, trips to the Vatican to get the Pope's buy-in. Basically, Basically, the coolest diplomacy possible. Can you just yeah. walk us through the story? Like, what was it like being there and, and negotiating with, like, people? These were not sort of some flunky from their Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This is Raul Castro's son was your interlocutor. Yeah, this is – I was excited to tell the story because I've never told it before. And you, I said to Obama on Air Force One after the election, his re-election, he's like, what do you want to do the second term? I'd really like you to stay in your job. And I'm like, look, I, I don't want to just – defend your drone policy for another four years. Like, I want to do a project and uh, something affirmative. And that led to Cuba. So we sent the Cubans this message proposing a high-level, you know, kind of back channel from the White House to the Cubans. We didn't know who they were going to come back with. And we knew that who they came back with was going to signal whether they were serious about doing something or not. And they come back with Alejandro Castro, who's Raul's son and a hugely powerful guy in their system. And we're like, okay, these guys mean business. And... You know, I remember flying up to Canada for the first of these secret meetings, and we go off to this, literally a cabin in the woods. Um, the Canadians were really discreet. And Alejandro Castro's son w- walks in. <laughs> and that first meeting was just you know a lot of history and the Bay of Pigs and how many times did the CIA try to kill Fidel? And we weren't getting anywhere. But over the course of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine meetings – you know, we built some trust. We did some confidence building. And ultimately, you know, we had just been negotiating a prisoner exchange to get an American Alan Gross out of prison in Cuba. And they wanted some Cubans out of prison. But, I, you know, I said to them, let's push this as far as we can. Let's go as big as we can. And that's what ultimately led to, you know, us being at the Vatican and making these agreements there to reestablish diplomatic relations and, to, they released 53 political prisoners in addition to the exchange and to open up travel and commerce between the United States and Cuba. And it really was like the most satisfying moment I had in government because you know, we were doing something that just felt wholly affirmative, positive, like you know, righting an historical wrong and offering a better future for Cubans uh, in Cuba and for, and for our relationship. Now, it also comes with a lot of good stories because as I I kept negotiating with the Cubans even after the opening, you know, to have Obama's trip down there. And I met Raul Castro a couple of times, uh, had this bizarre experience at Fidel Castro's funeral where I was the only American on stage except for like Danny Glover and Harry Belafonte. Um, <laughs> nice. And like all the Latin American left is there. And But the last trip I took to Cuba was a few days before the end of the administration. And I had this long dinner with Raul Castro and we're drinking rum and talking about history. And towards the end, I started kind of urging him, well, don't give up on this. Like Trump, maybe you make a deal, Trump. And he could tell I was kind of really upset that maybe Trump would put the brakes on this. Mm -hmm. And he says to me, look, you know, and for those viewers or listeners who don't um, know, you know, Raul was the, the minister of defense during the Cuban Missile Crisis under his brother Fidel. And he says to me, uh, look, Ben, once there was a general from Ossetia, which is a former Soviet province, he's like, there was a general from Ossetia who had the authority to launch nuclear missiles from 
Cuba without telling me, even though I was the Cuban Minister of Defense. So I've dealt with harder things than Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I literally wrote down that quote and was going to read it back to you because I loved it yeah, so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, fuck off, kid. We, I got this. <laughs> yeah, I've been around the block a few times. Like, you may be sad about your election. I've dealt with the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> it's so good. One other historic diplomatic breakthrough that you go through in great detail is the Iran deal. Now, President Trump recently tore it up. And like reading this again, I, I just uh, was thinking about how deeply personal this must have been for you, for Kerry, for everybody who worked on this, because the groundwork for this deal was laid during the campaign when Obama said he would meet with leaders he didn't agree with. And it took years of painstaking sanctions and negotiations. And, and then you led the team to help ensure that it didn't get rejected by Congress. And, and along the way, you were just personally pilloried and attacked. You were called anti-Israel. Yeah. You're criticized for participating in a New York Times magazine profile that talked about the work you guys did to try to get the deal through Congress. You became, as you called one chapter in the book, a right-wing villain. Can you talk about what happened and, and what that was like for you personally, like going through that? Yeah, well, first of all, it was – I wanted to be honest. It was just terrible, right? And you, know, you put on a brave face when you're there. But you know, this is something that we worked on for years, and it was – pretty technical at first, right? Like, how do we pursue sanctions? And then how do we get into negotiations? Mm -hmm. But the closer we got to a deal, the more kind of strident, unhinged, virulent the opposition got. And, you know, one of the things I describe is that, like, they abided by no standards. I remember, you know, one day, you know, I'm seeing a Breitbart story that has taken off about me in which they have whole quotes of things that I'd said. I mean, one was so crazy. It was like Ben Rhodes said, that the kiss of the nuke deal will turn the Iranian frog into a prince. Just made and they had that in quotation marks. And then that had been picked up in right-wing media. And then they're all, you know, Ben Rhodes is such an idiot. You know, I never even said anything remotely like that. It wasn't even like they took it out of, you know, like changed one word. The, and, and I had this sense of just, I mean, the irony for all the heat I took on the echo chamber is that there was this massive echo chamber that hated the Iran deal, but, thought that the way to discredit it was to savage people like me who were spokespeople for it personally. And then I kind of walked into this trap of that New York Times story, which had that objective. And it was a really difficult because, you know, you want to, you know, when you're there, you kind of shrug it off and you're like, oh, you know, we have the right enemies and, you know, we're, we're going to, we actually won the debate, which was a hard fought win to, to secure it in Congress. But, at the same time, like, you, you know, you, it takes a toll on you when when you realize that there are like millions of people out there consuming this cartoon of you, you know, yeah. that you know, they, they, for me, it was like he's a liar. He's a, he had a fiction master's degree and he lies and he's an anti-Semite. And I talk about what that was like, and even though my mother's Jewish and, you know, it, it, it kind of grounded me down and it also kind of made me probably more angry than I should have been. In other words, like I got a chip on my shoulder and, it, it, you know, I probably sunk into the muck a little bit, you know, cared too much about what my critics were saying. Uh, and so I do have to say that having gone through that experience, which, by the way, followed me out of the administration all the way to Israeli spies for Black Cube, you know, digging up dirt on me and my family, to have gone through all that and then have him kill the Iran deal was like pretty terrible. You know, uh, they owned me, uh, you know, they owned the the libs on that one. Uh, <laughs> because unlike on Cuba or even Paris, 
like the Iran deal is kind of all you're either doing it or you're not. You know, like yep. a future president come back into Paris, Cuba, they haven't really rolled back. Like, but that's kind of a binary thing. And to have spent all those years on it and taken all those hits on it to just see him tear it up, like I have to say, that's a pretty yeah. rotten feeling. Yeah, I mean, I, I raised it because it sort of it speaks to the strange isolation of the job. Like, we, we had the coolest jobs in the world. No one should feel bad for us. That's not my yeah. point. But yes, I was reminded of how isolating and alone it can feel in that place because you're like one of the only people read into classified information. Uh, one example was both of us were interviewed for a leak investigation about yes. news reports about a computer virus called Stuxnet uh, that targeted Iran's nuclear program. We would have to go disappear for hours at a time to talk to lawyers that we paid for out of our own pocket. Luckily, I got mine pro bono or talk to the FBI facing like real legal jeopardy despite having done nothing yeah. wrong. And we sat in the same office and you and I literally couldn't talk about it with each other. <laughs> it was yeah. just like crazy. Well, and I write in there that the absurdity of that situation was, you know, first of all, like we're in the investigation because if you talked to that reporter, you're going to be investigated. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're guilty or not. It's just like our job was to talk to reporters right. about Iran. Talk to David things. Sanger so, 10 times a week. That was yeah, who wrote the and, book. Right. And so we're getting both getting hauled in. We're, we're good friends, and uh, you, but we can't even talk about it. So, But then the other thing that drove me nuts, Tommy, is like we're also getting all this incoming from angry reporters who are like, why is the Obama administration so eager to do leak investigations? <laughs> and there's this huge left-wing criticism that like we – and I'm like, nobody hates leak investigations more than me <laughs> yeah. and Tommy because they're really fucking us up, you know? Yes, yes. Um, and so that that used to drive me insane. But it was also like – you're right. Like, hey, I would – it comes with the territory. Your public figure stuff is going to come your way. But it is isolating because, like, you, when you go to work on the Obama campaign in Iowa, the last thing you expect is five years later to be in a <laughs> – you know, sterile FBI conference room with Rod Rosenstein <laughs> asking you questions, you know, and lawyers all around you. Yeah. Oh, God. Those were not fun times. Those were, that was genuinely scary stuff. One other thing the book it just brought me back to that time was the foreign trips and how exciting they were. Uh, and remarkable, but also frustrating at the same time. And, and I guess what I mean is the response to Obama visiting a country or a yeah. cultural stop was always – it was overwhelming. I mean some of that is the power of the office, the power of the country. But seeing a young kid in Ghana or Brazil respond to Obama's mere presence was inspiring because of what it said about a, how America had changed and what that change meant for that kid. But – that feeling and that inspiration rarely translated back home. And you, you tell a story about a particularly frustrating trip when Obama delivered a eulogy for Nelson Mandela. Can yeah. you talk us through that story? Yeah. So, and you're, and you're right. It, it was weird to be a foreign policy speaker because you give a speech in a foreign country and be like the biggest thing that was going to happen in that country for years. You know, they're going to talk mm -hmm. about that speech for years and it barely registered home. But the Mandela one really graded, and that's why I spent a lot of time on it. You know, here it is. Nelson Mandela dies. I had to go in and tell Barack Obama that Nelson Mandela was dead. And I remember feeling totally inadequate to that moment. Yeah. Um, you know, first African-American president, his hero, Nelson Mandela, is dead. And then we had to write this eulogy. And what I describe is over the course of writing it, I was in this awkward position as this kind of young white guy. Um, and and I, I worried that I was I was playing the role of like, the white liberal who wants to hear Barack Obama, you know, talk about how great Nelson Mandela was, you know, I felt a little out of place. But the point I was making to him was 
you know, really personalize this. Like, tell uh, what did Mandela mean to you personally? Um, and he he rewrote the whole eulogy, which is why it's a really good speech, uh, you know, by hand on the plane to uh, South Africa. I'm you know going back and forth with him on it, and he ended up with some really kind of beautiful tribute to Mandela, but then some pretty visceral personal language where he said, you know, how Nelson Mandela made him want to be a better man. Um, and and what he meant to him and Michelle and and really talked in in personal terms that he didn't usually uh, do, and by the way, the part of the context for that time is that you know our press would always say, you know Obama's aloof and stuff, and and here he is on this huge stage, you know where the rest of the world is all paying tribute to Nelson Mandela, and he gets up there and he gives this, I think, very visceral, uh, personal and beautiful speech about Nelson Mandela, and then we get on the plane to come home. And all of the coverage back home is about uh, – well, some of it's about he shook Raul Castro's hand and they, yes, that was important. It was the first time he had done that. But much more so, there, he, like a, the Danish prime minister was like an attractive blonde woman and she took a selfie with Obama right. and David Cameron. And literally this was the story back home and it was like dominating cable news and you know tabloid headlines and social media mem- memes and everything. And I remember Obama saying to me, like, I've never been this aggravated by the U.S. press, which, as you know, is saying something. Yep, yep. But he need to – but, I, but I, the point I make is racism wasn't something we had to talk about a lot because it, it was kind of obvious. And, and what he was saying to me is, like, well, of course there's a racial element to the fact that, like, why is it newsworthy that he's taking a selfie with a blonde woman? Because he's black, yeah. you know? And – the fact that they would – that people would in the United States who were seizing on this would miss the the the, the hor- horrific irony that they are – that's the story they're taking out of him eulogizing Nelson Mandela, his hero. You know, when, when he wouldn't even be president if Nelson Mandela hadn't done what he'd been part of the legacy with Martin Luther King and, and nonviolent resistance um, – you know, it was always a little frustrating that the, the the dynamic you described abroad didn't translate home. But that one, sometimes things would happen to make you say, like, there's something kind of not right in our society. <laughs> yeah. um, if somehow the biggest news of Barack, the first African-American president flying around the world, eulogizing Nelson Mandela in starkly personal terms, that the biggest takeaway from that is that a blonde lady took a selfie with him. Uh, you know, that... I use that as kind of the stand-in for all of the frustration with kind of the trivialization and twinge with a little race that I think he had to deal with. Yeah, that showed a, a Donald Trump Jr. level of lack of self-awareness from the yeah. from the press corps. I wrote down just the word Benghazi. I couldn't even get myself to write a question. As <laughs> I was reading through the chapter on Benghazi, I paused and sent Susan Rice an apology note for her having to have gone through that all over again just because she was like the person who stepped up and did Sunday shows for us. But yeah, I guess what I never totally realized and understood was how much worse it got for you after I left. Because you and I were were there together on the day of Benghazi and trying to deal with the, not just the sort of roiling protests all across the the Muslim world because of the innocence of Muslims video, but also the sort of cynical attacks from Romney and the cut and thrusts that led us through the mm-hmm. election. But then the investigations kicked up to a degree that just got so vicious and personal that I, I don't know that I never really knew how many times that you were dragged in front of Trey Gowdy or name your cynical member of Congress and just 
pilloried by these guys. I mean, have you gotten over that yet? Well, what happened what was interesting to relive. I actually found this to be one of the most interesting things to write about because, first of all, what would happen – because in writing about this, I, I understood Donald Trump and how he got elected better. Mm-hmm. Because what would happen is there'd be a flare-up. You know, there'd be some new piece of information about Benghazi that would cause the Republicans to go crazy. And it was almost always either false or completely misrepresented. And then it would kind of go underneath the radar a little bit. But what was interesting is each time it went underneath the radar, it got worse mm-hmm. because it was just going into the kind of right-wing conspiracy factory to be replenished. And I remember having this surreal experience, which I describe of like, Every now and then on on my Twitter feed, which I didn't use that much in the White House, suddenly like hundreds of people would be tweeting at me some outrageous, you know, just unhinged hatred, right? Because some segment had just run about Benghazi where they had some conspiracy theory. So I could feel it building underneath the surface in this kind of netherworld of Breitbart and talk radio and wherever. And then when it would explode again, it would be that much worse. And, you know, I've had everything from like, the Republicans giving John Carl a, a completely made-up email of mine that caused a uproar to Fox News chasing me into my house with you know cameras yelling, "What about the Benghazi talking points?" You know, I'm carrying my dry cleaning. To uh, having yeah, to go hauled in front of Trey Gowdy and having him, you know, what I didn't put in the book, Tommy is my favorite is they were so relentless in trying to prove some theory that I remember they had some email from you about like Benghazi talking points and you put like explanation marks on it. And they're like, why did Mr. Vitor put exclamation marks on his email? You know, and I'm like, this is really where we are. I'm like, <laughs> it's not uncommon for Mr. Vitor to use exclamation marks. Oh, my God. Electronic communications, you know. <laughs> um, but it, so number one, what it showed to me is that there was an industry on the right. Yeah. That was the media and the, and their, and the Congress. Like they didn't care about facts. They didn't care about anything except for hanging this on Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And insofar as I was a supporting character with Susan Rice, I was part of that. And that's what led to Trump, right? Like this, this kind of fact-free outrage machine, social media. Like I realized in writing the book that that, that thread was very connected to to what led to Trump, mm-hmm. including, by the way, it was the select committee on Benghazi that found, you know, the Hillary Clinton private email server, which had nothing to do with Benghazi. Right. Um, and, and then on the personal side, you know, yeah, I realized that I didn't handle it well. Like, I thought at the time I was handling it well. But, you know, I write about there pretty honestly, like, I started drinking too much. Uh, I wasn't sleeping well. I was more irritable. My wife had the tragic loss of her father. And I was like probably not as fully there for her because I was like too hung up on the stuff I was taking. So I don't think I handled it particularly well because in retrospect, you know, I was a pretty young guy. I was like in my mid-30s. I wasn't quite ready to be targeted like that. Like you said, jobs and honor. But it felt like this went beyond – the normal, you know, rite of passage, especially because I, as I, I really like, we didn't do anything wrong. Right. And one of the, my favorite anecdotes about Obama in the book is during one of these spikes in tension, he called me into his office and it's like two years after Benghazi, but I'm taking all this grief. And he says, like, I know you've been kind of down and I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. And he's like, well, did you do anything wrong? And I was like, no. And he said, well, then what are you worried about? You know, and that right. was kind of his mentality of like you, all you can control is whether you did something right or wrong. But for me, what ended up happening is they connected all this stuff with me, right? So 
first I was a leaker and then it was Benghazi and then the Iran stuff came in and it was all this kind of ball of negativity about how essentially, you know, I was a, a liar and a fiction writer and, and they would just take the latest thing and slot it into that narrative, yeah, right? And just attack. Um, so by the time I walked out of the White House, like, you know, they had done some real, you know, damage in, in, in terms of at least their own people believing that, like, you know, the worst possible things about me. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason people troll people, right? Is because over time it does wear you down and it works. It does. And, and it was our job to live in the weeds and live in that morass. But it was funny to remember that because we had a president that like, I don't know, woke up and talked to his family and read the PDB and like did real work. He didn't watch cable news all day. So he yeah. never knew he didn't how know. crazy the Fox yep. News Benghazi conspiracies were to the point where in debate prep, you had to very clearly remind him several times about what he'd said on that day. And, and frankly, that saved him at the debate with Mitt Romney, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah this was a hilarious Obama story because he didn't read all this crap and he didn't, certainly didn't watch Fox News. And I remember having to go through the, you know, the theories he might be asked about, their stand-down order. And, and he's like, this is some real tin hat stuff. And I'm like, I'm telling you, it's on Fox. And then you know he had stood in the Rose Garden after the Benghazi attacks and condemned it and called it an act of terror. And so one of the charges was that we hadn't called it terrorism. And so in the, the, the answer that he was giving, he was saying, well, I stood in the Rose Garden, I called it an act of terrorism. And I kept correcting him saying like, you know, you got to call an act of terror. And Fav, Fav was there too and did the same thing. And he thought that that was, it made no sense. He's like, well, and this is frankly one of the things that Hillary said. <laughs> She's like, what's the difference between terror and terrorism, you know? And I'm like, in this environment, a lot, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you just have to. And and Romney just walked right into it in the debate and said, no, you never called it an act of terror because Obama gave that answer. And Ron, what scared me about that, because they go back and forth, back and forth. And at first, it's a great moment. And Candy Crowley, the moderator of the debate, comes in and says, actually, he did call it an act of terror. And that was it. Like Romney had lost that debate that turned a lot of the momentum around, frankly, after the, the terrible first debate. But then I thought about it after, and I, I was writing about this, like Romney seemed to believe like that he had never called it an act of terror yeah. on stage and believed all this stuff. And like Romney's not an he's not a dumb guy, no, you know, he's very smart. He's, and he's not even like a Trump guy. Like th there's something that happened in the Republican mindset, in part because maybe they are all consuming Fox News, where you could have Mitt Romney as the major party candidate, and literally he didn't believe that Obama had said something that like a transcript showed Obama had said. Yeah, the right wing fever dream became their reality, whether they yes. liked it or not at some point. And it is exactly it is scary. You were dealing with like I remember I you were getting the craziest questions. I was like Obama, the way Obama was to me, I kind of was you come in and be like, I just so and so from Fox News called me to ask me. And what you tell me, I couldn't believe the stuff you were getting. At the it time. would be like, did Obama watch Chris Stevens get overrun via a drone feed in the Situation Room. Yeah. That was reported. I mean, just yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah, it's horrible. There are many, many, many more questions I want to ask you about this book, and I believe you're going to be out in L.A. soon, so we're going to harass you on Pod Save America. But while I have you for my final question on the Foreign Policy Show, when you wrote the book and you look back at eight years of all the things that he's accomplished and maybe some of the things that have been unwound what do you think Obama's legacy is on foreign policy at this point? Like, what will be enduring that you and I will be talking about over a, a scotch in 30 years? Well, I, you know, like, I think there are a few things that are individual that's, that will continue to stand out. Like, I think that 
Uh, well, first of all, he whacked bin Laden and Trump can't bring bin Laden back to life. <laughs> True. So that's something. Um, he really did. You know, we had 180,000 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan when we took office and we had like 15,000 when he left. That That's a huge shift that he didn't get enough uh, credit for. Frankly, part of his saving the global economy was getting the world to come along. And then there some of the individual pieces that look bad now will look better. Like Paris, I think is going to be a huge legacy because I think the next president will just come back into the Paris Agreement. And mm-hmm. then the Paris Agreement will be how the world deals with climate change. I think Cuba, same thing. Like Trump has rolled some of this back. But I think inexorably, we're going to open up to Cuba and, and he will be the guy who initiated that. So things like that will stand out. I think more broadly, though, this is kind of the note I end the book on. I thought a lot about presidents. And you know, you actually don't remember that many policies that presidents undertake. I thought about like John F. John F. Kennedy was probably my hero, right, as mm-hmm. a president. And I, you know, when he became my hero when I was like kind of high school, college, I probably couldn't name five foreign policies of John F. Kennedy. You know, yeah. maybe the Peace Corps. Uh, he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis pretty well. Like that's that's it. It's the feeling he gave. You know, it's the speeches he gave. It's it's the the inspiration that he offered to people. And it actually connects back to the point you made about all those foreign trips. Like, I I believe, uh, and again, people will accuse me of you know Kool Aid drinking here, but I, I I think history bears out that like there are certain American presidents who make an impression on Americans and people around the world that sticks. And I think that Barack Obama meant a lot to a lot of people in the United States. But even more so, like billions of people around the world who saw him as a moral leader, who saw him as as a, as an indication of you know what minorities can accomplish um, inside of countries, and what are those people going to do? Like, what is the inspiration that he gave them? What, what is that going to lead to? You know, what what? How is a generation of people that kind of came of age and felt inspired by Obama going to end up changing the world? Yeah. And so I feel like. As much as I hope that a lot of these policies look good, when you and I are having a drink in 30 years, it's going to be more like, yeah, Barack Obama is one of those kind of handful of American presidents who, you know, changed the way people around the world thought about themselves. And and frankly, I think that even if Trump won this election, the world is going to, you know, I hope – move more in the direction that Obama was charting, a more progressive, inclusive world where nations work together to solve problems, uh, where people of different you know, races accept each other uh, for who they are. Um, and so there's an intangible to his legacy that I think will be more apparent as time goes on. And just like you know, we like to look back you know, 50 years to, to the Kennedys, you know, I think people are going to look back to Obama with, with a similar sense that he inspired people to do things um, and to make change. And and that ultimately is probably going to be bigger than the Paris Agreement or certainly, you know, even if the Iran deal had survived, it wouldn't have been nearly as important as that as that dynamic. You know, Tanya Sominator, who uh, who runs all content here at Crooked Media and, and worked with you on the Iran deal stuff, yeah, told me lo- her one piece Tanya. of advice was ended on a hopeful note. And uh, that's <laughs> yeah. about as good as it gets, I think. That's as good as I can offer, I think. That's pretty damn good. The book is The World As It Is. It is a truly fantastic book. If you want to learn about foreign policy in the last decade, about Barack Obama, about what it's like to work in that place as a a relatively young person and all the ways it changes you for good, for bad, for permanent, (laughs) buy the book, read the book. It's really great. You did a hell of a job, man. Awesome. Really appreciate it, Tommy. Thanks a lot.